Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage, to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine the show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience of Smith Weekly, including Luke A. and Mike P. Returning to the show is Scott Hicks, Vice President, Corporate Development of Luminex Resources, an Ecuador-focused gold, copper, explorer, and developer advancing the flagship Condor project in Ecuador. The company has a group of Ecuador exploration projects being evaluated through joint ventures. The company is listed on the Toronto Venture Exchange under the symbol LR and also on the US OTC markets under the symbol LUMIF. Scott, welcome back to the show. Hey, Andrew. Thanks for having me again. Well, Scott, to the markets first, um, thoughts on gold and also on copper at this point. I'll start with the negative one and finish with the positive one. I mean, obviously, we've seen copper basically test, call it upper end of the cost curve here recently. So, I mean, getting down to that kind of just over $2 level. Um, I mean, obviously, we don't think that's sustainable um, and it's just a, a near-term blip, uh, so to speak. I think a lot of the demand is going to come right back as soon as all this uh, coronavirus stuff is, is cleared up. It's, it's not like... Uh, oil where you and I aren't getting in our car today and not driving and not burning a barrel of oil and 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 that demand's gone. Um, you know, I think that demand for the copper is still going to be there and come uh, right back once that's cleared up. On the gold side, I mean, this is this is kind of the setup of all setups. I mean, this is what people have been talking about for basically since it went down in 2013 is endless money printing, um, helicopter money, checks coming directly to people and true, you know, devaluation of, of fiat currencies. And I mean, that's, it's uh, crazy to think that all that stuff has kind of come to fruition, but uh, that's where we are now. And, you know, I mean, the US dollar has been incredibly strong. And even in the face of that, uh, gold sitting here, I think as I'm speaking at about 1,620 bucks an ounce. Um, so, I mean, if we see, you know, any uh, weakness in the U.S. dollar, when people kind of realize the scale of what the Fed's doing and have somewhere else to go, because, I mean, obviously it's a bit of a flight to safety in the U.S. dollar side of things right now, you got to think gold's going to come close to retesting the highs from 2011. Yes, absolutely. I agree. And short of a liquidity crunch which still might happen to some degree, like we saw a few weeks ago. It's certainly, there's no doubt that gold is headed higher. Maybe it doesn't happen for six months, but certainly it is headed higher, no doubt. We can see the stresses that are in the market on that front. And with a number of you know, operations being curtailed just by government order, that's going to cause continued supply chain issues for gold, which obviously is good for those who have gold. The copper side, certainly we've seen a lot of volatility in, in copper producers certainly some challenges going on there. On that topic, uh, speaking of COVID-19, Scott, what are your thoughts? Do you see at this point, um, I know you guys have been watching, I know you guys have been talking internally. At this point, do you see that this lasts a few more months or do you see that the impacts will really span the rest of this year and potentially into 2021? 
Yeah, so I mean, Ecuador has had, Ecuador specifically has had um, a fair number of cases um, and was, I'd say, pretty early to lock down the international flight situation. I think globally, this is going to go on for a while. And obviously, the, the worst thing could happen would be to, to open it up too fast. And obviously, we don't want to see a, a second kind of wave, so to speak, come through. You know, we're fortunate in both our Ecuadorian companies, Luminex, which we're talking about today, and Lumina, that you know a lot or most of the field work we've been planning uh, had been done, and really at a point where now we were actually moving to some of the kind of the more you know engineering, met testing, study, resource estimation phases uh, for those projects. So that just happened to work out timing-wise for us. But I mean, in Luminex, and we'll talk about it more. I'm, I mean, we're hoping that we could. Uh, we'd originally talked about a month stop with our two uh, drilling contractors. I mean, we were hoping that at the end of that month, um, we'd be back at it. Now that's, you know, we're kind of call it two weeks into that right now. Um, I think the reality is if you look at what's happened in Peru and, and now today, basically Mexico, um, you know, this is going to get pushed out um, and it's going to be kind of a week here, a week there. I think realistically, you know, if we were back drilling in June, we'd be pretty happy about that uh, scenario. Um, you know, we put out our, our maiden resource here to give people a, a progress update on the camp zone, which we've been drilling in Luminex. Um, and, and that's kind of a, you know, a point where we can we can pause naturally and, and evaluate a lot of the data we have and think about, um, you know, what the best uh, drill targets are to hit next and prioritize. So we've seen exploration and mining activities halted in some areas due to COVID-19. For operations that are not being stopped by the government, Scott, and for companies who have a prevention and on-site measures in place to prevent, detect, and stop COVID-19 within those operations, do you see that these operations should continue to do their work? You know, it, it's really site by site, and it's hard to talk in broad terms, but I, what I would say is, you know, for people who have uh, remote camps and have, um, you know, people coming in for longer shifts, I think it's it's easier to do. Uh, you obviously have a lot tighter control of who's going in, who's going out, um, and and you know the ability to kind of monitor that a bit better. You know, for mines that are having their employees bust in every day, it's probably a bit harder of a proposition. And you know, I guess for other people, it's also to the extent you know, they can, they can social distance and keep, you know, that, that level of safety high. So at our Condor camp, um, you know, we're down to about 30 people right now, which is kind of call it the, the minimum level of staff and monitoring people on the way in and, and, and the way out and ensure everyone's observing the, the social distancing rules. And, um, and, you know, there's still lots of work that people can do in those conditions. So, I mean, work is ongoing. It's just, the drilling we stopped just as a as a precaution, um, just because you know you you've got a lot of consumables and 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 um, you know outside contractors coming in and out under those circumstances. I think there is a way to manage and mitigate, even though a lot of people out there are saying that everything should be stopped, and I don't think that's the prudent way of going about it. I think that uh, there are ways to mitigate it, uh, not just in the in the mining industry, but you know, even in the, the utility business and the critical support activities for utilities. I'm involved with other consulting with other companies that have uh, critical infrastructure mandates to make sure that support activities for utilities continue for power generation purposes and so forth. And I think that 
We've seen a lot of protocols come out, even in-house, that are very good and really can be just as good as these government orders to stay in your house and these types of things. I think that people who are putting their mind to it can come up with policies, temporary policies that make sense uh, why we go through this process. Scott, let's talk a little bit more about Ecuador for a moment. How's Ecuador doing generally in comparison to, say, maybe a Peru, a Chile, a a Panama? How are things going there? Um, Is the government uh, holding up okay during this uh, COVID-19 crisis? Yeah, so I think the biggest thing uh, in the last month that would really affect Ecuador has been the shift in oil prices. You know, it's obviously a big portion of their economy. and having these dramatic downdrafts, I mean, you know, it was a big deal for them, obviously. And when we went from $100 a barrel to $50 a barrel, and you know, going from 50 to 20 odd dollars um, is is dramatic, and and will put a big hole in their in their budget. Um, you know, medium to long term, I think that continues to strengthen the argument for diversifying the economy, and is probably a a net benefit to mining, but in the near term, um, you know, that it's not helping anybody. Uh, so that's probably the biggest impact from from the COVID-19 uh, stuff that's directly uh, hurting Ecuador. Um, you know, the next elections are basically a year from now. Um, obviously, we saw, you know, last November, October timeline, the government trying to remedy the, the deficit by um, you know, reducing the fuel subsidy and, and doing some things like that, um, which caused a bit of civil unrest, uh, and they ultimately had to put that uh, back in. So, you know, I think for the government, it's a question of how can we cut costs on, and how can we raise revenue in uh, in other areas? Um, so that's really, I think, been their focus, um, and, and that'll take time. I mean, obviously, you and I know that, you know, mining projects don't turn on overnight, and they've they fortunately had these two large-scale mines um, come online here in Q4 um, with Mirador and, and Fruta del Norte, um, and they were just starting to really, you know, start kicking out some some real dollars back to you know the government on taxes and, and royalties, and and obviously during the construction they've been supporting the surrounding communities for the, for the whole build time because there's very substantial investment there. Um, so the COVID uh, thing and having those mines, you know, either paused or back to reduced activity is is also tough. But, you know, I think once we get on the other side of this, hopefully, you know, on the other side of Q2, you know, those two mines and, and other mines are going to prove crucial for the government uh, on the revenue and uh, and the deficit side. Yeah, the mine revenues are just important for these countries. I mean, I just I I saw also Caliber Mining shut down their operations in Nicaragua, and I know that those operations, formerly held by B2, as you know, are substantial tax revenue for the countries. So this is going to hurt, and it's going to be painful for a while. And the governments, I suspect, want to do everything they could potentially do to get these things up and running as quick as possible uh, once things start to pass on here. Well, it's been about a year since we talked about Luminex. What has been accomplished since we spoke and what changes have occurred over at the company? We've achieved a lot in that year and, and I can't remember the exact date we talked last, but the big items were obviously the discovery of the camp zone, which which would have been around this time last year. And for your viewers, that's that's the area that was right underneath our, our camp at Condor and, and had never been drilled before. 
um, where we had an initial hole of, of about 40 meters of intercept for almost five gram per ton material. So by far and away, the best material that have been found uh, to date at the project. Um, so that, that discovery. And then obviously we also did the partnership with BHP um, on our Tarkey project. And that's probably our most prospective um, early stage copper project there. So those are really the two large developments. And then in the background, obviously, we've had Anglo-American working away on our Pegasus projects for now another full year. Um, and, you know, they're at the point where they were planning to drill before the end of the year um, and, and start that program after a pretty rigorous, um, you know, geophysics program um, and, and a lot of soil stream sampling, you know, very methodical exploration techniques. So um, those are the, the three main components of the company, the Condor project that we're, we're funding and drilling, the BHP project that uh, they're, they're planning to fund and drill, uh, Tarkey there, and then Anglo working away on, on our largest land package, Pegasus, uh, the 67,000 hectares uh, just in the center of the country. And where are we today as far as capital structure, cash on hand, potential cash coming in on the joint venture front, and of course, percentage ownership by the major backers? So um, just capital structure, we're sitting at about 72 million shares outstanding. I think we're trading at 66 cents a share today. So, you know, under a $50 million Canadian market cap, which is, um, <laughs> by my view, kind of breathtaking. Uh, if you think about the, the suite of assets we have, that have resources as well as um, the partners we have deploying their capital. Um, we raised 10 million Canadian in December and we have about 8.4 million US on the balance sheet as of uh, the end of December. And uh, we're just about to file those financials uh, next week. Um, shareholder wise, we've got Ross Beattie who took 3 million of the 10 million financing in December to max himself out at that 19.9% level. So just under the control person threshold. Uh, we have an Ecuadorian group that holds 9%, a Route 1 that's a fund out of, uh, out of San Francisco that holds about 9%, and then management and the board which hold another 7%. So between Ross and management, it was about 27% of the company that, that's held. Um, and, you know, we typically go pro rata um, every financing. And then um, your other question regarding, um, you know, money coming in from, from BHP and, and Anglo. Um, Anglo is actually getting close to the first phase of the earn-in where they would get to the, um, the 27%, uh, or sorry, excuse me, 25% um, ownership threshold. And you know they needed to spend ten million dollars U.S. in the ground um, to get to that, and pay us uh, about three point two million dollars in cash payments. So they need to pay us another um, just under a million dollars in cash payments to get to that twenty-five percent threshold, and uh, and they're getting pretty close on their spend uh, at that ten million rate. BHP, um, you know, they just had started out more recently, um, so they're they're not close to an initial threshold there. But you know, they're they're working on the community and working on the geophysics and and getting the project to to be drill ready. And that million dollars that will come in at some point from Anglo, mm -hmm. um, can you speak to will that happen sometime in 2020, Scott, or when do you see that potentially? Where's a window on that? 
think they had until actually 2021 to pay that and to hit their exploration spend, um, but they have been spending at a faster rate uh, than they need to be on the exploration side. So they'll probably, I imagine, I don't know this, but I imagine once they hit the spend threshold, they'll probably just make the cash payment to to get that ownership threshold locked in. But like I said, I, I don't know that. So, you know, they have more time if they want to, um, but that, you know, that is money that will come in in the next year and a bit here. Yeah, that sounds good. And with your guys' current cash balance, Scott, are you guys of the opinion that you guys will be pretty well off for the remainder of the year with your activities and where you guys have your cash balance? Yeah, so we had planned out to, you know, fund for about nine months, call it, um, with with the drilling activity. And we've been drilling fairly rigorously uh, with three rigs until the end of last year and then two rigs since January. And given the COVID stuff we were talking about, we've just paused that. So, you know, it'll be a bit uh, up in the air when the funds get us to, but but I'd imagine, you know, Q3, Q4, um, once we once we restart drilling, um, you know, our group's always had a philosophy that if you're, if you're on to something, it's better to, to drill faster than slower and go raise the capital you need. So that was certainly, you know, our theory when we raised the 10 million in December to keep drilling the camp zone. And, you know, this main resource we put out shows that, um, you know, we are adding value at the drill bit. I want to go back for just a moment. First Quantum, what was the thought process behind them pulling out? Was it because of their financial situation, Scott? And in addition to that, can you speak to, are you guys in communication with further parties to attract further joint venture work on the company concessions? And will those deals, if they come about, will they be similar in structure to what's happened with BHP and Anglo? So I'll start with First Quantum. So going back we had a, a similar deal to what we have with BHP and Angle with First Quantum on our Orchidius and Cascus properties. Um, they had drilled with us uh, about five holes on Orchidius which was a copper molybdenum target. Um, you know the drilling didn't return great results as well as it kind of closed off the potential uh, size that it could be the deposit. So that for them I think was a point where they wanted to walk out. It was also their only project in Ecuador. So, you know, if you think about their approach, they were interested in one project, they had us operate it, and they just wanted to see how that went. Whereas BHP and Anglo have built, you know, huge teams in Ecuador. Um, they're they're setting up for the long term. Um, you know, we're not operating those projects, they're operating them. And, you know, they're being pretty methodical about it. Anglo has been so far, uh, you know, having been at it for for over a year and a half now. Back to First Quantum, I think, you know, they have a lot going on in their company, obviously, and and a new jurisdiction, an early stage project um, that had, you know, so-so drill results after five holes. I think for them, that was just a let's let's pause here um, point. Coming back to the other properties and the question on whether we'd look at other partnerships, yeah, I mean, we still have a fair number of early stage greenfield ones. If if your listeners are um, looking at our presentation on, on slide six, you can see there's the map of the whole country. And we've obviously got our key projects, Condor, Tarki, and Pegasus. But there's a lot of blue boxes there as well um, that are early stage projects that could be partnered. You know, we certainly have, have CAs with people and, and have had people looking at these 
we would be open to partnering them um, with the exception of with the exception of Cascus, I should say, because um, Cascus is really in our mind the next best gold target outside of Condor. Um, but you know, La Canela, Trace Picacho, Sarkidius, uh, Kimi, those are the remaining properties, and and we'd look at partnering those if people were interested. Um, and some of those are, or most of those are copper targets. Um, so you know, we've taken the philosophy of, of focusing on drilling the gold targets and letting um, you know the number of copper players that have entered uh, the country um, focus on the copper stuff. Yes, and certainly First Quantum, they've got their hands full with Cabri de Panama, so that'll probably keep them busy for a while, and obviously the current conditions in the market is not helping them. Now, let's talk a little bit more about recent news, Camp Zone news that just came out, and then can you also just include with that uh, your guys' plans to finish out 2020? Just give us an update on what you guys plan to accomplish the rest of the year. Sure. So just for your for your listeners' benefit, the the Condor project it's it's a series of deposits. It's not one deposit. And if you think about the the property, you can really divide it into to two halves. There's the northern portion, which is uh, an epithermal gold system, and then there's the southern portion where we have a large um, gold copper porphyry. So in the northern area, that's where the camp deposit is. That's really where we focused our drilling. So right now, um, existing deposits before we found the camp zone at, at Cuyas and, and Soledad, there was about 1.6, 1.7 million ounces of, call it, you know, 0.7 material there um, in open pitable format. So, you know, reasonable grade um, and, and low strip deposits uh, that's, that are sitting there. But we wanted to look for a higher grade starter area um, so that's why we were very excited when we found the camp deposit now we've just put out uh the maiden resource that was based on our first uh, 28 holes of drilling there so we defined about 12 million tons of material at uh, 2.25 grams per ton gold and call it three grams per ton gold equivalent. Uh, there's there's a fair amount of uh, of silver in the mix with this as well. So so the deposit you know is 900,000 ounces of gold, 7.4 million ounces of, of silver there. So uh, you know a great starting point. You know a lot of companies would be would be happy to have that as a as a, a million ounce gold deposit as a standalone underground scenario. Um, so we have we have that there now, and and really what that will potentially allow us to do when we go to do a PEA study is have that higher grade material on the front end of a mine life. And then you've got those other deposits, you know, within a kilometer radius. Cuyas is 400 meters away, Soledad's about a kilometer. Um, and you can bring those in on the back end of the mine life. So, you know, you've got a fairly large gold project just in the epithermal uh, area there now, you know, with almost 3 million ounces basically. And then, you know, as far as what we're trying to do next, there's a, a untested phase between um, some of these deposits. So, you know, it looks like the camp deposit trends from the north uh, west to the southeast. And if you keep going to the southeast, you basically hit our Soledad uh, deposit. So we want to test the area that's in the middle right now, and that's called, uh, we're calling that Soledad Bajo. That's the area where we'll drill test next. And, and we think we can do some shallow drilling there um, to see if the two areas connect. And you know that would, that would add quite a bit of scale to the project if, if that were to happen. We also have, you know, we've been hitting really good, very high grade results, you know, in the 
six to seven gram per ton type area um, deep in the camp zone. So we could drill additional uh, deep holes there um, and look to, to add more high grade underground material at the camp deposit. And then, you know, to the northwest of the camp zone, um, you know, some of the soil work we've been doing looks very prospective there as well. So we could continue, you know, to the northwest trend. So these are the kind of the three areas we'll, we'll be working to explore in and around the existing deposits. And then the last area that I know, it's a lot of uh, it's a lot of things to list. There's a lot of uh, a lot of different targets uh, at this property, but the last area we're looking at is called Permet the Door, and that's just uh, to the south of the Soledad Pit, and that's you know quite a quite a large uh, surface gold anomaly there. So you know when you think about this, there's just these there's so much mineralization on this property, um, and for us it's just been you know we knew the exploration potential was there. It's, it's how do you, um, you know, get enough high grade material to wrap a project around it. And, and we think with the camp zone and we've done that now, um, and then we're excited to keep, you know, drilling these other targets and, and really see, you know, how big this thing can get now. So the condor is obviously going to be the main focus and your guys' other wholly owned concessions. Um, is there any plans to do any further work this year out there? Yeah, so we're getting caskets um, prepped for drilling and, and really, you know, Diego and the team in country have done a, a phenomenal job of working with the communities over the last, you know, call it year and a half to, to get the, you know, the access agreements, um, the work agreements in place with the community so that we can um, go do more work there and, and look to drill it. Um, you know, Cascus 2, which is, uh, they're, they're contiguous concessions, but Cascus 2 is the one to the further south. Um, historically has had a lot of um, artisanal mining on it. So we know there's we know there's a substantial amount of gold there. We already have a pretty well-defined gold anomaly and a pretty well-defined copper anomaly on that property. So, you know, the plan originally pre-COVID was to get, get drilling that in this year. Um, you know, we'll see if that happens this year or early next, but but that is kind of our, our next um, best gold target outside of Condor. So, I mean, you could see a scenario where we keep two rigs going at Condor and maybe add a third down at Cascus for some kind of scout drilling. And Scott, what's your guys' timeline as far as, you know, getting the, I believe it's an updated PEA on Condor and moving forward down that advancement path. What's your guys' two-year plan on that front? It's a bit of an odd project in the sense that when we acquired it, the prior company had done a PEA, but they'd only done it on um, Santa Barbara, which is that porphyry in the south. Um, and they hadn't looked at the northern deposits. So we're probably um, going to do the opposite um, and leave Santa Barbara for now and really focus on what a PEA would look like in this in this northern area. Um, it will be, you know, everything's kind of fresh from that perspective. We've just started a metallurgy round on all the fresh material from the camp deposits. So that'll give us a good sense on uh, the gold silver recoveries there, as well as some of the base metals you, you find in the deposit. Um, and really kind of be a, a good um, stepping stone to to doing a PEA. Um, I think it would be realistic to have a, you know, a PEA out in call it mid 2021. 20, uh, 
we don't want to rush it necessarily because you know some of those areas I was just talking about drilling between say the camp and Soledad or to the northwest of the camp could materially change uh, the type of project you're looking at up there for for scale and quantity bounces throughput etc so we're we're driving everything forward as much as we can while still you know waiting to see the drill results because it it is changing uh, fairly fast I mean you know we put up a million ounces here at the camp deposit uh, in relatively short order and and so that kind of shows you that you know another say six months of drilling could change a lot again as well right Yes, absolutely. And interesting to see what else you guys can delineate out there and, and it's certainly coming together and a pretty dang good setup with what you guys have going with the JV projects and some of these other wholly owned targets. Lots of good things going on and we're excited to continue to watch what you guys are doing. The last thing I'd say, Andrew, was, and, you know, the, and Ross likes to make this point, and I think it's a good one, is, you know, we think that Condor alone supports the valuation of the company. I understand why people have trouble attributing specific value to, say, the Anglo uh, or the BHP deals because there isn't a resource there yet um, and they haven't started drilling. But, you know, on the Anglo properties, they've defined eight different porphyry targets already. And BHP took our best copper property that we had already defined a target on. So, you know, I think the odds that one of the two of them hit or both of them hit are reasonable. And if that happens, there is a there's a lot of potential for the share price, given that Condor is already providing that base valuation to where we are today. Yes, absolutely. I agree 100 percent. Scott, how about potential investors who are listening or even existing shareholders? Why should they be taking a new stake or an additional stake in Luminex today? What would you say to them at this point? I think we're in a unique time in the market where, you know, this stock and company is not appreciated. I would have said that pre-COVID and I think COVID's only exacerbated it because people are looking for positions with liquidity. And, you know, I, I'd say to your listeners that pick some valuation levels in these liquid names and, you know, take advantage of, of some of these drops you're seeing. I mean, I'll use another example that is not us, just so people don't think I'm just talking about Luminex, but I mean, Say, look at a name like Midas Gold in the States. I mean, we saw that drop from, from 50 to 25 cents, just valuations that don't make any sense. So, I mean, pick some levels, set some limit orders, um, and, you know, pick the names you want to hold for a while. And, and I think this is probably one of the most exciting exploration packages in Ecuador, which is you know, a rapidly evolving mining jurisdiction. And so I think you've got upside to the country's development. I think you've got upside to the BHP and Angle work. And then, you know, we're proving that we're adding ounces at Condor as we drill here. So a lot of upside and, and all this again is, you know, in a sub $50 million Canadian company. It's pretty unique from that perspective. In fact, I, you know, I don't think there's there's any other junior company out there like it right now. It is a good setup, and that's why certainly why we're here, and we continue to support the company. And you guys have a good setup where even if the market conditions continue to deteriorate in the broad market, you've got strong hands and a strong group and, and a strong backing to where people know that this is going to pass through these rough times and will eventually get realized by the market for what it is. And so I think that's a, a good point to potential folks who are listening. And Scott, how about investors who want to reach out to the company for more information? Where can they go? 
our website, which is luminexresources.com, and, and email the info there. Um, just email myself. I'd encourage people to sign up on the Twitter or LinkedIn for the company. We try to put up any interviews or, or news there um, and keep people posted on, on what's happening. So definitely reach out if you have any questions. Um, I know there's a lot of moving pieces in this company and, and it takes a while for people to understand. But I think when your listeners, you know, look closer at, at the package and, and think about the individual components and the values, it's a pretty unique proposition. Agreed. Well, Scott, once again, thanks for taking the time and good luck out there. Okay. Thanks, Andrew. Appreciate it.